Hello and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 39 of the Historical Humans podcast. My name's Justin Woods, and I'm joined today by my fellow co-hosts, Cullum Coleman and Aaron Gilpin. And today we are traveling to the Middle East, talking law, talking politics, talking leadership. We are talking the inspiration for a lot of modern law. And That's what right, that be? you can be only one man. And one man only, Harambe. No, 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 Hammurabi. We 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 respect Harambe though. That is, uh, that is what I said. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Dated now I'm memes. actually here. Dated memes. Let's do this. At oh. least I'm actually here, well, and the Pinkertons ain't got me again. We'll go. Yeah, Aaron has Both returned Aaron. from the Pinkerton um, investigation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, oh, so today's, right. to today's topic is Hammurabi. Uh, this is uh, one of the rare times where we feature an actual individual as our podcast segment. Uh, very rarely do we just focus on one person's life, but uh, we think he's uh, monumental enough to do that. Considering we still use him as an inspiration for our penal system, it's probably a, a pretty important but, person. Justin, the man has a statue in the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. Wait, I'm does he really? Yes. He has Aaron, a statue in the U.S. Supreme Court. He is the, the Supreme Court has a wall with carvings of lawgivers throughout history uh, that are like considered like fundamental to like the law of the United States. AKA he's, high inspiration. <laughs> yeah, at, uh, and he's he's on he, he's on there. There is a carving of Hammurabi in the United States. Oh, gee, I that explains that. a lot with their decision making. We're not going to get into politics. Yeah. <laughs> I well, will. Not modern politics. We're now, going prehistoric. Uh, that's right. So Hammurabi um, ruled the city of Babylon in Mesopotamia and what is now Iraq. Hey, oh, I've never heard of it. That's kind of important. And every time an American says Iraq, a fleet of F-22 raptors fly over. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's unfortunate son. <laughs> it's Toby Keith's red, uh, white, and blue. I'm, I'm joking, of course. It's switchblade drones. <laughs> All right. What, what, he, it was an <laughs> but, important place in Iraq. <laughs> it, was import, it, was, it was an important place in what is now Iraq. Uh, it is was uh, a major city and one of the major kingdoms uh, of its time uh, when Hammurabi came in to rule it. Uh, Hammurabi was the sixth king of his dynasty, uh, a dynasty which lasted from 1894 to 1595 BCE. So this was a pretty stable dynasty, uh, covering almost exactly uh, 300 years. That's pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, Hammurabi ruled from 1792 to 1750 after he inherited the throne from his father, Sin Mubalit. 42 years? Yeah, is that he 42? Is for... my math right? Was... He, he, ruled, he ruled for 42 years, yes. He ruled for life, universe, and everything. Wow. Um, he was succeeded by his son, uh, Samsuluna, uh, who, unlike Hammurabi, was not obsessed. Hammurabi inherits the throne, and he gets to work right away. Uh, he was, he, like his son uh, and like his father before him, were already involved in the political administration of the city and of, you know, the holdings of Babylon. It's just Hammurabi was better at it than Samsaluna. And uh, there's there think things kind of go wrong at the end of at the end of the reign, but you know, for reasons that will become obvious over time, it's Hammurabi set his son up for failures. 
no, 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 no father has ever set their son up to yeah. fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's it's uh it's it things get pretty bad, <laughs> but uh, the very interesting thing with Hammurabi, one of the first things you know about him is his name. It's actually a rather unusual name. Um, it's extremely strange, even for a uh, even even for its time, even for what would be Babylonian culture. Be and that's because the name Hammurabi is a combination of two names. Uh, one Amorite and one Akkadian. Now, Amorite was the language of Hammurabi's family because Hammurabi and his dynasty, they're a foreign dynasty in Babylon. They're not native Babylonians. They are foreigners. Ooh, drama. Yeah. The Amorites were a nomadic tribe from Syria that had taken governance of Babylon. Uh, and uh, Akkadian was the language spoken by the everyday Babylonians. So his name being a fusion was an attempt by the family to sort of, after about a hundred years of rule, really integrate themselves into the population. You know, kind of generate that loyalty of like, you know, he's one of you. <laughs> yeah, that's usually how that works. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. See, um, he's one of us, one of the people. You know, I, 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 my son is an American. I named him Banjo. The song of the Appalachian starts playing in the background. Paddle now, faster, your banjos. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, no, but. You see that a lot in a lot of cultures where there's any level of foreign. Um, leadership within it in that they try to identify with the people that they're controlling or that they're in charge of and they try to make these connections to seem more akin not this foreigner it's a very interesting kind of tool almost i think yeah um and in this case it was an incredibly incredibly egotistical tool because would you would you without without looking at the next part of the sheet uh would anyone like to guess what the translation of Hammurabi's name is? Is it? I want to go with. Uh, so he's known for his laws. So maybe it's like great lawgiver or something like that. I think it's the great one or the great like judiciary. Yeah. Well. Uh... You're you're both uh, equally right and equally wrong. Okay, uh, so I'm gonna fine. give you the half you got right. So, uh, Rapi is the Akkadian name uh, that translates to great. Oh, uh, and uh, it is the last part of his name, which is Hammurabi. Hamu means the family. Hammurabi is the great fam family. He's uh, the one of the great family. That makes sense, yeah. That's an interesting so, name. Incredi you know, incredibly egotistical. I am your ruler. I am the great family. <laughs> yeah, this is my... No, that just makes me think of those celebrity children's names, like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow named her daughter Apple. Like, this is my child, the great family. He is oh, one of the great I, family. I am the great family. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very much. Uh, this very much serves Hammurabi well because uh, he does like to position himself as sort of a 
father figure for all of Babylon. Um, he does this several times throughout his reign, but in order for him to do that, he needs one thing. Accomplishments. He's got to do great things because he is claiming from birth to be a great man of a great house. Man, the dude just was born with like a full like beard, like fully foreign face saying, I am great. Th do you know what the annoying you, part is for me? You for that uh, uh, General Akameen, Admiral General Akameen, whatever that stupid movie was. Do you know what really annoys me about this, though, is even without talking about any of the things he's done, we clearly know that he was successful in the pure notion that we are talking about him today. He is not like Al Nasir, the the poor copper merchant that is forever enshrined in the Oriental Institute. Listen, listen, Justin. Hmm. He could have been Pyrrhus, a man who is famous for losing so many men in a single battle. He may as well have just retreated. I mean, honestly, even his, uh, like, the man literally had no other, like, he could not sit still. He had to be fighting. He was, there was oh, no hands, good enough. Oh, you're, you're wrong about that. Hammurabi did not need to be fighting. Oh, no. I meant Epirus. Oh, oh yeah. Pyrrhus? Yeah, yeah. Pyrrhus. Yeah, Pyrrhus had problems. That, yeah. Uh, Pyrrhus, for those who don't know, was a... Greek general who invented the term Pyrrhic victory, meaning I may as well have lost because he would lose so many troops during his fights. He may as well have lost, even though he took the field, he would end up with so small an army afterwards. There's almost no modern comparable situations. Hmm. Silence. Silence. <laughs> I will Silence, not be Justin. political today. I will not. I will, be I will send. I will send you to the la ram land of the not Byzantines. It'll be. It'll be your turn for the Pinkertons to come after you next. Oh no, not the Pinkertons! Yeah, yeah Aaron made friends with them. All right, he's gonna send them after us. Oh no, re-education camp. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, Hammurabi does not need to wait long for his great accomplishments to come to him. For in 1792, the year he succeeds his father on the throne of Babylon, the kingdom of Larsa to the south along the Euphrates River invades and conquers the buffer state of Isin that allows um, it direct access to Babylonian territory. Now, Larsa... It controls the southern half of what is now known today as Babylonia. And under a existing chief who had been established during the reign of Hammurabi's father, a man by the name of Rim Sin, Larsa has made itself known as something of a major power. It is Babylon's chief rival, and although it cannot directly take on Babylon, it is, how able, however, able to pick off any and all Babylonian allies, assets, and vassals. <laughs> uh, it's a real thorn in his side. And so Hammurabi inherits a throne with a pretext for war. What does he do with this? He goes to war. Nothing. No? Oh. He does not march off to war for five years. And the reason for this is because when he takes the throne, 
Babylon is one of the major powers in Mesopotamia. All right, it's got a large military. It has a major population center. It is located in the most advantageous position on the Euphrates it could possibly have hoped for. And it controls four main cities, Babylon, Kish, Sippar, and Borsippa. However, its primary foreign policy is controlling the Euphrates River. And so for the first year, first five years of his reign, he is consolidating all of his cities along this river to maintain control. Now, Larsa, on the other hand, is located downriver. It's at a major disadvantage against Babylon, and it's constantly trying to push Babylon out to gain advantage on that river. That's why it conquered Isin, to get closer to Babylon. But the river constantly changes course. So Hammurabi is taking his time and watching the river. Because that is going to be his weapon in the wars against Larsa. What? He doesn't. He doesn't need armies. He doesn't need metal. He doesn't need swords, steel, gold, any of that. He just needs the water. He's a waterbender? <laughs> you, yeah, you, 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 you suddenly see like a tar. Yeah. Like <laughs> oh, no. That's... Oh. The four cities of Babylon, the four nations of, uh, of the Avatar universe. Here we go. This, this man is using uh, ecological warfare. I'm yeah. just curious because there's a lot of ways you can weaponize water. And I just, in my heart of hearts, I know it's not going to be a good thing. But I'm just curious as to what he does. So, yeah. So, 1787, Hammurabi begins his campaign against Larsa. Now, Larsa has only gone to war with Isin in, during Hammurabi's reign at this point, right? It has only attacked and destroyed what was a neutral, independent state. It has not attacked Babylon. But the, but the loss of Isin as a buffer state is something that the Babylonians find unacceptable. After all, they need breathing room. And like anyone who has ever said that in history, major atrocities follow. Uh, he uh, begins his campaign in 1787 to control the Euphrates, and within that year, he conquers Uruk and Isin, which were two of the Isin cities that Larsa con that Larsa took. And you know, naturally, he liberates them into his empire. Yep, that's usually oh, how it works. Yeah. You are now yeah. free from their empire. Yeah. You yeah. freed us. Not so much free, more like. Under new management. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cities yeah. now under new and, management. And the reason why these cities, which would have been border cities, fall in the first year of the campaign is because Hammurabi has also mastered the art of statecraft during these five years and has arranged with Larsa a defensive treaty against the nation of Elam, which was another major power that bordered Larsa to the east. It had been building itself up. It was a major threat. And in 1787, Larsa was, convi Larsa was convinced that it was at war with Elam and that Babylon was joining it against Elam. So it moved its armies to fight Elam. 
And then Hammurabi moved Babylon's armies to fight Larsa. <laughs> <laughs> the second the armies de-garrisoned from these cities, he attacked them. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, uh, we'll join you to protect you yeah. against this threat. And, oh, you're unprotected. Yeah, because Larsa, being the southern Euphrates uh, territory, really has only two major borders to concern itself with. Babylon in the north, and Elam in the east. Babylon is completely surrounded by hostile territory of near equal power. So it doesn't matter to them which way the expansion goes. There's, you know, they have to keep their guard up on all corners at all times. So, you know, you gotta get you gotta get an open an open shot at something if you're gonna win. They True, can't, yeah. They can't reinforce from the north, east, or west. Their south army is all they have to march into Larsa. Uh, in 1786, he continues his war with Larsa. Um, and it goes nowhere. The Larsen army returns. It does not regain any lost territory, but it does prevent uh, Babylon from continuing to advance. And uh, Babylon is going to shift its attention away from this war. There's no real peace treaty. There's no agreement. They both sides just kind of stop fighting. And stare at each other along the new borders, much like they were in 1787. Uh, and this is largely because in 1784, problems to the north arise, and Babylon needs to divert troops to deal with that. And uh, the two powers are going to remain at peace for about 20 years. In fact, Babylon doesn't go to war again for 20 years. They continue to watch the river... They've asserted dominance. They've basically conquered Issin as part of them now instead of part of Larsa. They have what they believe to be the upper hand on the river. All is well. All is well. And, and then uh, the Fire Nation attacked. Dun, dun, and, dun. Uh, yeah. And so Hammurabi um, decides uh, he's going to do a... Uh, was called a pro gamer move. And... <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. God damn it. <laughs> I am I am I, I am full I'm I'm just full of chaos today. Uh, he is uh he's gonna play the he's gonna he's gonna play for a diplomacy game here um in a way very similar to all those alliances that caused World War One to break out. As he makes he constantly makes, breaks, and shifts uh, coalitions with everyone around him in order to make sure that Babylon is always on the most favorable end of the balance of power. Because during this 20-year period, um, there are, in fact, uh, five major powers of Mesopotamia that are basically controlling the Tigris and Euphrates River. All right, those are the five powers that control the river. There are many other states that pop up, come in, come out, but those are either on the edges of Mesopotamia, not really controlling the river, or there's much smaller states that kind of exist as, like, somebody else's ally. <laughs> uh, and these five main powers are Mari, Ashur, Eshnuna, Babylon, and Larsa. And he basically manages to constantly keep Babylon from being in an alliance that drags it into a war, or from being in a position where they don't have enough allies and look like an easy target for the war. 
So you know, he's pulling a full uh, he's pulling a full Bismarck right now. <laughs> and he uses this time to do the thing Hammurabi loves to do most. Divert and, the river. Nope, that is build things. Oh. Damn the and river. In, and in this case, Hammurabi builds every fortification he possibly can along his borders. I mean, kind of smart when you're in turbulent times, in these trying, yeah. troubling times. Oh, yeah, God, don't. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. Most, all the other nations around him aren't at peace long enough to have the time and stability to simply build and reinforce walls on all their cities, fortresses for all their garrisons, you know, key strategic choke points along the river have, uh, you know, defenses and scouting towers and everything. He He builds it all. Because no one is crossing the border to fight him, no one stops him from getting just the perfect defensive infrastructure set up. Honestly, it's smart, too, because when he does eventually go on the offensive, you have a place to base your troops out of that's like a jumping-off point. Yep. And that's precisely what he does at the end of these 20 years. Uh, after 20 years of preparation, Amarabi's time to strike has come. And he proceeds to turn around and start executing Order 66 <laughs> systematically. And by, and by that, I mean going to war with three of the other four major powers at once. <laughs> well, technically, two of the other major powers and Elam, because Elam's back again. They kind of That's kind of a thing for them, if I remember correctly. Elam's just kind of there. Yeah. Elam has the unfortunate distinction of not being on a river and constantly trying to get a hold of territory on the river. <laughs> they never succeed. It's interesting, though, because it kind of gives you a hint into the idea of the power and the projection of power that Amurabi had. If three different individual nations all decide to go to war against him at once. Yep. Well, here's the thing. They didn't do it individually. Elam and its two allies, Asher and Eshnuna, the uh, two of the other you know major powers of bat of uh, Mesopotamia, they enter into a military alliance to cut off um, Babylon from Iran, because these are the three powers that at present control the Ti uh, are to the east of the Tigris River. They control they control access to these iron mines, and so they decide. You know what? Babylon is too powerful. They're too well fortified. They're getting too many good resources in. We need to we need to barricade them up and prevent them from getting access to the necessary materials to keep building. So they form an alliance. They embargo Babylon, and war breaks out. It's three on one, and. Hammurabi's just like, that's a fair fight. Yeah, yep. no. He's and like, that's not a fair fight. He's like, you and, guys and need in, help. And in 1763, Hammurabi looks at the fortifications from Elam, Asher, and Eshnuna. And then looks south at Larsa and sees an opening and proceeds to invade Larsa to <laughs> loop around through Elam and start hitting them one by one. Uh, he's just <laughs> like, yes. He pulls a full jump and just goes for it. <laughs> this just man cut, really just gonna cut the marginal line in half right there. This man really was just like, yes, 
course, these three other cities are my enemies. Let's go invade Larsa first. Yeah, like, yeah. he's just trying to collect all of the Infinity Stones. <laughs> he's just, it's like a running joke for him, just to fuck with Larsa. Yeah. Well, to be fair, Wolfson uh, is, I believe, I, I believe he may still be king of Larsa at this time. He might not be. He is very, he lives a long time as king, but he predates Hammurabi and it's been 20 years. Uh, Hammurabi still hates Larsa. <laughs> they hate him with a passion. Um, and uh, he uh, goes into Larson. This is where all that time he spends with all that infrastructure and, you know, focusing that foreign policy solely on controlling his river pays off. Oh, no. It pays Hello? off. As he dams up the entirety of the Euphrates River, all its, all its uh, subsidiaries, all its tributaries, everything, all the water that flows into Babylon no longer flows out. Now, Larsa is uh, downriver from Babylon, which means that all the water that Larsa depends on to survive is gone. And Hammurabi didn't even have to enter their territory to do it. Oh, man. A remote victory royale. Like, that is beautiful. Yep. Yep. I mean, um, awful, because there are so many consequences to withholding water like that. Yeah. Um, in 17... Yeah, it, and it takes three years for Larsa to succumb. Wow. Uh, in 1760, uh, Larsa gives in uh, after being directly besieged um, for several months in that year. Uh, Larsa had water supplies, they were surrounded, but, you know, it's been three years since fresh water had flowed, they have no way of growing crops, and they still wait for Hammurabi, and they still refuse to surrender until Hammurabi has literally encircled the city with soldiers and is threatening to burn it down. <laughs> At that point, just a loose torch, a loose lantern, and, you know. Yeah. I don't Lord. think these people were necessarily building out of the abundant wooden forests that go along this incredibly unpredictable river. <laughs> I'm thinking this is more of a an adobe brick kind of city. <laughs> oh, so at least they'd be like fired bricks by the time the fire's done, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's uh it's pretty bad. Um he uh, celebrates uh, during this time in his 30th year of rule, which is 1762. He celebrates 30 years on the throne um, by actually conquering most of Mesopotamia in that year. Wow. <laughs> Even though Larsa is under siege at this point and not subdued for another two years, he takes a swing round and conquers Assyria, Larsa, Ashuna, and Mari. <laughs> He wipes them all out. Now, Larsa is the last to go down, but um, he gives himself the epithet at the end of all this, the king who made the earth obedient. Oh, jeez. That's a hell of a title. Yeah, that is ego-central. Well, well wa watch, what, uh, watch what happens. 1762, uh, you know, so second year of this war, he takes out Ishnuna and Asher. Then in 1761, he turns on his ally, a man who has been his ally for the last 20 plus years, uh, a man named Zimrilim of Mari, and he wipes out the Mari in 1761. 
What? Why? Oh. They gosh. were there. Why do you climb the mountain? It's there. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. He but thou shalt covet like, his wife. <laughs> and his yes. position at major crossroads. Trade routes. Looking like a real wealthy position there, buddy. It'd be a shame. Yeah, if, uh, uh, he did it. He did it primarily uh, for financial reasons. He needs those trade routes. He needs to keep funding this war. Uh, Hammurabi doesn't know how long this war is going to last, but he does know that even after 20 years of carefully managing everything so he can wage this war, his army's not going to have much endurance if he can't keep renewing funding. So he is financially uh, literate. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Larsa uh, goes down in 1760 by siege. Uh, Eshnuna actually has a bit of a resurgence as uh, the war with them is like really intermittent. Like basically every other year there's a new declaration of war and Babylon takes another chunk out of them. I mean, yeah, like I assume a lot of these wars are in campaign seasons. Well, not even that. Like basically he's at war with Eshnuna in like 1763. Then he's at war with them in 1762. Then he's at war with them in like 1759. And then he's at war with them in 1750. So it's like, there's like, there's like, they take whole years off. They just periodically just stop sending troops, and then they come back and wipe them out as soon as the guard's down. <laughs> you thought. Yeah. Uh, so the last of the Ashuna fall in 1757. Um, well, actually, it's the final campaign in 1757, as Ashuna officially surrenders in 1755 when he dams their river and proceeds to start trying to drown them out. So... <laughs> He he he, re, he reused an old tactic to great success. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I saw a man dam a river to get to conquer a city, I'd have two nickels, yeah. which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, now, following his normal pattern, uh, like he does in Larsa, he builds new canals and irrigation systems around the dams that he built, uh, so that the cities can have water again. Uh, following his war because again once they submit to him he kind of doesn't need to keep starving their population <laughs> you know he knows to stop killing them when they surrender uh, which is more than could have been said for uh, the last person we talked about directly on this show Oliver Cromwell <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ireland still stop, remembers. he knows to stop killing people when they surrender Ireland still remembers <laughs> yeah uh and uh, here's the thing. Um, Hammurabi actually condemns Babylonia uh, and the Babylonian Empire to death with this conquest. Cause, oh? Uh, yeah. So, Esh, uh, Eshnuna was the only buffer state between Babylon and the Kassites. Now, the Kassites were... Uh, um, they were a sort of tribal people uh, further uh, further to the east. They're one of many divided, smaller polities, so they didn't look like much of a threat at the time. Hammurabi has no way of knowing that this is a mistake. However, they will launch a nomadic invasion and do what uh, Hammurabi's ancestors did ages ago and conquer Babylon. Uh, and because Eshnuna is not in the way anymore, they have direct access. Oh... Uh... And uh, they so they proceed to just 
realize they can gain a ton of power by raiding and uh, attacking these Babylonians. It uh, it takes some takes him a few hundred years, but basically he just he just made borders with the Huns. Oh no! <laughs> like, you share a border with the Huns. Ah. Mulan starts playing in the background. We must defeat the Huns. Huns, the Mongols. There's so many confusing. But basically, it's something you never want to share a border with. That he en that ends up becoming what they are because they share a border with him. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's it's like this self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I mean, that's man, always the tale with, with like emperors and uh, dictators and all sorts of leaders in that. They always expand their empires to their furthest extent, and then they end up collapsing because there's a certain, like, there's a certain point in no return where it becomes too big, or like you end up uh, bordering an adjacent polity that is not quite as friendly to you as. Uh... I mean, it's more. It's more. He probably just expanded a little too fast. Not didn't have the infrastructure to support it. Well, here, here's the thing. Well, also, what, it's just those guys, like the Cassites. They were yeah. just gonna, they were just looking for something to do. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: the Cassites get their attention turned to Babylon because it's a big, prosperous empire over, you know, the next uh, couple hundred years, and they border it. They, if Hammurabi doesn't conquer Eshnuna, they don't border this glorious empire, and thus wouldn't have an interest in, I don't know militarizing to attack it. <laughs> hmm. So it's one of those things where it's just like, if you didn't build the border, if you didn't build your borders all the way out through Eshnuna, you wouldn't have ever had the Cassites as a threat because the reason the Cassites become a threat is because you're hella rich and you're on their borders. <laughs> and so it's this self-fulfilling cycle of just, you know, if you don't invade Eshnuna, there is no threat east of Eshnuna. If you do invade Eshnuna, there's a threat east of Eshnuna. It's, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, the way the timeline breaks. <laughs> this is this is just what happens when you don't think too far in advance. Or in this, yeah, and by that we mean approximately uh, 155 years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you should really have a 155-year plan if you're going to lose lead <laughs> even if you don't live that long it doesn't yeah. matter you should have your legacy live behind your age yeah anyway uh hammurabi he's an incredibly involved ruler once he gets a hold of all his territory because he has conquered all of mesopotamia he is the ruler of babylon he's a ruler of all babylonia he is the ruler of all mesopotamia he controls the land between the rivers now at this point in time, is he the first person to conquer this much land, or has there been uh, rulers before that have conquered more? Um, so there have been there have been other uh, empires, uh, such as I believe the Sumerian one predates the Babylonian one. Uh, however, I don't think any of them, at least in the Middle east in mesopotamia have gotten quite as large as his uh to to date at this point this is definitely bigger than the sumerian one however this is not the first uh territorial state to exist yeah i didn't expect it because uh i know for a fact it's not the first empire i just yeah, wa no. wondered if it was the largest up until this point uh, 
I do believe it is the largest as um, Babylon, as the people Babylon is fighting are, I believe, the uh, heirs of the Akkadian and the Sumerian empires, both of which would have comprised roughly half of what Babylonia takes over, or what Babylon takes over. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because, you know, because uh, uh, Babylon would have been, because uh, like Asher, I believe, would have been part of Ak the Akkadian Empire, but Uruk would have been part of the Sumerian, I think. Yeah. Uruk and, so, and both, know, both yeah. Uruk and Ur. Yeah. So, you know, south of Babylon would have been the Sumerian Empire, and then north of it would have been the Akkadians. The Akkadians would have, I believe, held Babylon. And then in the successor state, Babylon becomes one of the major powers and wipes out the others. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm not sure if either of you two were aware or any of the listeners at home, but on the University of Chicago, there's a free museum called the Oriental Institute that houses one of the largest Mesopotamian collections from all of these uh, empires and societies. I figured that's a good call out because that museum is awesome and it is free. Yeah, I do. Chicago? Yeah, free in Chicago. I like how that's the first word I repeat was free. But yes, it's on the University of Chicago. I mean, it's that's a, the important part. It's in Hyde Park, but it's it's awesome. It's an incredible collection. I want to go. Field trip. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we go on places. Um, yeah, but anyway, with Hammurabi himself, uh, during the 20 years of peace and during the... Um, uh, better part of a decade he has after uh, he has conquered everything, we get to see what he's like as a ruler. And he's very, very personally involved. And on the one hand, this is great for him. It means that he is definitely the sort of man who can transition the Babylonian government from, you know, was effectively uh, city-state politics, where you're just ruling over one or two settlements, very directly, very closely linked with each other. Uh into what would be considered a territorial state, which is what we would consider a modern nation or an empire, where you are ruling from one place over places that you will probably have never visited. Um, also, the fact that you keep saying that he was a very involved ruler just makes me think he was the first, like, micromanager. He's the first Michael Scott. He, he <laughs> was. He was an incredible micromanager. Uh, this man refused to delegate... Uh, he put himself in charge of uh, temple construction, um, agriculture, uh, general public infrastructure, monumental great works, uh, and revising the law code. Hmm. This man just really did not want to give up any sort of control. He, I guess when you have ultimate control, you don't ever want to lose even a fraction of it. Yeah. I mean, only and, if you're a bad person. And, well, and here's the thing, too. He's because he's got this much of his hands on with it. He is the man who can reshape society because he's doing everything. The problem for this comes in with what happens when he dies, because he's been doing everything, which means that there isn't um, a lot of ad capable administrators. There's not a lot of connections to other parts of the realm that aren't via him his successor doesn't have as much experience as him in statecraft because there's less state for anyone who isn't Hammurabi to craft 
despite there being far more territory to deal with. See, I thought you were going to say, like, he left a very efficient and well-optimized system of bureaucrats and bureaucracy that help run a well-oiled machine. No, what he did was he standardized and reformed the existing uh, sets of laws and infrastructures. Um, so basically, every, he, he set up uh, building massive temples, mostly to Marduk, the patron deity of Babylon. He set out with uh, building a bunch of canals and irrigation systems, basically so that uh, he could ensure that no matter what happened, his empire could feed itself. If there's a drought in Larsa, then grain from Asher can come in and feed them. Which is a really important thing. And I know people that play city survival games in the modern day can attest to the importance of making sure you can feed your populations. You've been yeah. playing Banished again. Yes, religiously. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. The theme pings from this man are... They're worse than yours, Aaron. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I thought mine were bad. This bad. Yeah. But uh, he, you know, he he focuses on building so many of these things and on reforming the law code. And he does so much with, with this that he's actually shapes a, the next thousand years of history for, uh, for Mesopotamia. He shifts the focus northward. Uh, away from the traditional uh, centers of power with places like Sumeria, which were further south. He folk, he, the, the power of Mesopotamia is in the north now, and it will stay there for a thousand years, which is long after his dynasty go goes, because it gives out about a century and a half after him. <laughs> he, uh, uh, he does a lot. He, in fact, does does so much to reform uh, laws and standardize legal codes over this mess of an empire. Because he's conquered about, you know, a half dozen states at least at this point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, you know, that he is depicted in the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, that's still weird to me. Yeah. I'm um, not surprised. Yeah. The I South, am. The, the South Wall of the U.S. Supreme Court has a series of statues and depictions of basically... Um, what they would consider their precedent, uh, all the lawgivers from history that they consider have made and reformed laws uh, up to the point of the founding of the Supreme Court and the Constitution of the United States. I hope Draco's not in there. I don't know. Probably not. Um, not Draco Malfoy, you Harry Potter fucking no, nerds. Not, no, the draconian. <laughs> the reason we get draconian law. Yeah. Greek tyrant. Um, no, I think, though I think, uh, it might take a fancy, I might be wrong, but I think um, one of the Byzantine ones, I want to say uh, um, Anna Comnena's father. Oh, uh, Alexia. Uh, the Alexios. Uh, yeah, the Alexios. the second. I think he's on there. It's either him or one of the Justinians uh, gets up there for revising the law code. Justinian, the, yeah, Justinian the first reforms yeah. Um, yeah. Byzantine law. Yeah, one of the Byz I know one of the Byzantines is on there. I can't remember if it's, a, if it's an Alexios or a Justinian, but yeah, that's for you there, Aaron. <laughs> so the, yeah, they have they have people on there you like. <laughs> just, uh, just to be, uh, come on, man! Like the Byzantines are fine; they're great. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he does a couple other things uh, for 
for Babylon in, during the uh, rest of his life here. Uh, number one, he does something that most of the other kings before him, especially in the successor states and in Babylon and all this stuff, all the everybody's conquered. He does something that none of them have really done before. He refuses deification while living. Oh gee, ah, come on! That's such a that's such a ploy. It's he like, no, guys, don't don't worship me yet. Don't not once I... did he, not once did he refuse the crown. Not twice uh, did he refuse the crown, yeah. but three times did he refuse the crown. Well, well, here's the thing. Uh, in the tradition of the uh, of Mesopotamia at the time, is when a king wins a military victory, they are considered a god. And they are typically deified as part of their equivalent of, say, a Roman triumph would be the deification of their king. Because, you know, God alone grants victory in war. He didn't really agree with this. Uh, and he wanted to create a new concept of kingship. In that the king, instead of being a god themselves, is more a messenger from the gods. Since, as a king, even if he was deified, he would still have to kneel before Marduk, a god, uh, and all the others in the pantheon. So since he is still lesser, why bother deifying myself while I still have to pretend I'm less than these people? So he sets it up so that, he's, so that kings are deified upon death. And in life, what they do and what they bring are messages from the gods. That way, if he ever screws up, he can blame a priest or claim there's been a misinterpretation or a change in divine will. Because people make mistakes. Gods, oh, not so much. Yeah. So he's building a failsafe should anything go wrong for him during his life. This man built an empire on breaking alliances and convincing people repeatedly he could be trusted after doing so. Honestly, this man's charisma must have been through the roof. Like, he was rolling high on some of these. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, this man is. This man's charisma was definitely not his dump stat. Yep. Uh, and because it's Hammurabi himself who does this, it sets such a precedence that it makes deifying someone while they're alive seem barbaric, uncouth, and foreign. Uh, looking at you, Egypt. <laughs> Mesopotamia immediately starts looking down on Ooh, Egypt having god kings. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty hilarious. Um, and this concept of kingship will persist up through Hellenistic times uh, when Alexander the Great shows up. Because Alexander the Great says, no, I am a god, I am a son of a god, I am a son of a king, I am a king, I am a shah, a sheik, a emperor, I am all things... Uh, and you will not tell me no. <laughs> and so Alexander the Great ends this tradition uh, after it after it persists for approximately fourteen hundred years. Like I said, the man dominate the man controlled the destiny of this region for about a, a millennia. <laughs> wow! And then another dude shows up and does the exact same thing. Basically, hate how that happens. Honestly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we basically go. It basically goes Gilgamesh, Hammurabi, Alexander, <laughs> and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> oh, hang on, I'll get that down for you. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, this is uh, 
you know, this is a major shift uh, for the Babylonians, for kingship itself, and it's, it's, it's a pretty pragmatic one from Hammurabi's standpoint, because now he can backtrack on things and not have to worry about losing power for it. This man really was one of the first politicians out there. Yeah. Using well, at least the ones that we got a written record for. Well, you know, we hail Cicero as the world's greatest statesman, but uh, Hammurabi definitely uh, gives a run for the money there. Oh my god, is Cicero on there with the with him? Uh, no, Cicero wasn't a lawgiver. Cicero was a public defendant. So he's not in there with the. You no, know, he did, he did not write a law code. It's only on the on the Supreme Court. It's just it's only people who wrote major law codes. Okay. So because I guess some I have some who, bones to pick with Cicero. I like Cicero. He's Listen, fun. it's not so much. It's the, like it's mostly petty. It's nothing like serious. Yeah. It's mostly I, petty. I I, I, fi I figured as much. Uh, you're one of the people who goes after him for you know uh, polishing up his written versions of his speech so he looks like he's a better lawyer than he is. Literally, the man, the man just quite went like, nice. he's like, oh, wait a minute. This would have been much better if I said this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so after doing all these things, uh, there is, we, we do come back to his key failure, which is that he fails to establish this effective bureaucracy to, you know, run this new empire. Because he's so used to doing everything himself, and because he is such a made man that he can basically perform a George Washington and basically do say, because I did it this way, everyone now must do it this way. And no one is willing to break that tradition for centuries. Um, he, uh, he's, he's able to constantly just run from one corner of his empire to another and solve all the problems. Can he fix it? Hammurabi. Yes, he can. Yeah. Christ. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Part of it, too, is like Alexander, he doesn't have time left in his life in order to establish an effective bureaucracy over his over his empire. He spends most the wars that make him an, a great emperor and such come near the end of his lifetime, near the end of his rule. And after these wars conclude just seven years before the end of his reign, his health goes into decline. And he doesn't he's he doesn't live long enough to build that bureaucracy to make it last. When you have these massive reshapings, you need to do them early in life so that you have time. And Alexander did his early in life, but you know, he didn't realize his expiration date was thirty. <laughs> you know. Just say, remember the, kids, yeah. don't drink be careful what you eat. Yeah. Or drink, depending I mean, on I if it's poisons. Don't, don't drink and conquer, kids. I tend to be of the mindset that years of war and years of conquering and, like, battle, I, I imagine that that doesn't have the best impact to someone's health. Yeah, no, especially considering the fact that these wars were happening while Hammurabi was at least 50. Oof. Um, so, you know, he is not a young warrior on battle. The reason why the Roman Empire was stable was because Augustus had decades after his conquest in order to reestablish a new form of governments, a new bureaucracy, a new everything. Yeah, he was like 70 by the time he died. 
Yeah, he was 70 by the time he died, and he was less than 30 by the time he conquered everything. Yeah. So it was, you know, major difference. Whereas, in this case, Hammurabi has seven years to take a series of conquer of recently conquered states, most of whom are currently experiencing an ecological disaster because of him, and turn them into something that is going to be compliant, efficient, and uh, effective. <laughs> Oh yeah, I guess yeah, he, yeah, I guess that he uh, broke all the rivers in Mesopotamia. Didn't think that far ahead, I guess, did he? At more and some of them in more than one place. I just think he was being creative. Why is the river doing this? Remember that it's like it's like advisor. Why is my river? Why are the rivers doing this? Hey, remember that time he dammed the river? He's like. Shit, not again. Ooh, I yep. forgot you mentioned that. Uh, yep. Uh, and this lack of an effective bureaucracy causes a deterioration of the Babylonian Empire after his death. It goes into decline immediately after the man kicks it. Um, that's because his son, Samsaluna, loses Larsa to revolt almost as soon as he gets the throne. Hammurabi goes in the grave and Larsa declares independence. Ah! Jeez. <laughs> Because nice. uh, because Rimson over there uh, really still don't like Hammurabi, still don't like Babylonia. They remember what Babylon did. Uh, they really, uh, um, they really, you know, go after him. And honestly, Hammurabi's greatest weakness with this failure of proxies, he gives these laws, he builds this infrastructure. Well, he doesn't give he doesn't set up a long-term means of supporting it which means that all his works begin to go into disrepair and decline because there is no you know department of public safety or anything set up to you know manage them no uh bronze age osha for him to like have nope. guidelines <laughs> oh, yeah, yes yeah, this nope. iron mine is not up to compliance <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing there, there's no uh there's no department of transportation to maintain the roads no department of agriculture to make sure that all the aqueducts and irrigation systems and dams are all actually doing what they're supposed to do and not i don't know causing more ecological disasters that will in turn indict induce cities to revolt i'm gonna die here let's go have a stroke <laughs> go have a stroke for a minute <laughs> bye everybody that's okay <laughs> there's you know there's none of that so even though his you know his dynasty lasts for another 150 years it goes into decline right after the uh, immediately after the golden age that was his rule naturally which you know 40 you know 40 year golden age not that bad but we i think we should talk about what truly lasted and what truly yeah, stood yeah. the test of time and one of the reasons i think he's honestly revered to this day yeah yeah, yeah to be fair yeah hammurabi's code of laws the reason why he is uh he is considered such a great king oh god hmm. these things um uh you can actually read through them uh there's several uh free versions out there uh on the internet um if you want to give them a gander it's not the most interesting thing but it's kind of fun to see uh the nature of uh, how they're worded and uh, just how direct these laws are oh, on yeah. things. Because it's basically state's crime and then state's punishment for crime with a tier list based on your social standing. <laughs> it's like, 
It, for example, man murders slave. He shall uh, pay the value of the slave in full immediately. Man murders pleb. Man shall be, you know, man shall lose his hand. Man murders noble. Man shall be murdered. <laughs> God damn it, even this early on classism exists. Well, it was, this is hilariously classist, yes. But it's also the origin of the saying, an eye for an eye, because it quite literally was the code of law. You know, if you took something from someone, you usually had to give that in return. Yeah. Uh, and uh, these laws, they are recorded to us on clay tablets, but they survive best in a large stone stele that is now on display at the Louvre in Paris. God damn it, the French. We're not, not shooting the British Museum this time, but the Louvre. They have the uh, Rosetta Stone and this? To be yeah. fair, honestly, oh. they need to have some AC in there. Uh, honestly, I'd say thank Napoleon, but this thing was discovered uh, in Susa in 1901. Oh. During during the excavations of a temple of Marduk, uh, which is the patron deity of Babylon, um, this was this would have been one of the temples that Hammurabi commissioned, as uh, Marduk and Susa are not exactly neighbors. Jeez. But they were made neighbors after a while. <laughs> um, now play nice. So. And this stele is uh, the principal source for these codes of laws. It's the most complete version that we have. Uh, the rest were rest that we do have for it were, you know, again, clay tablets were just smaller versions. Like, it's the equivalent of saying, I have, you know, the whole, I have, you know, several pages of this book, as opposed to, here's the entire um, Sparknote summary of the book. You know, three pages here, two pages there, or the entire summary. <laughs> I, I just imagine, like... <laughs> Hammurabi's like, won't you be my neighbor? That wasn't a question. Oh, oh no. Evil, evil, Mr. Evil Rogers, Mr. Rogers goes on a rampage. Yeah. You will be my neighbor. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> um, yeah, so the stele has a very interesting depiction. So remember how we talked about how Hammurabi refused to have himself declared a god? Oh my god, is it going to be him as a god? And rather have himself depicted as uh, the mouthpiece of a god? Well, it shows the stele shows Hammurabi receiving the uh, uh, the laws from the god Shemesh, god of the sun, god of justice. Uh, the Shemesh is seated on high, handing these laws down to Hammurabi as divine word, which is a great way of saying don't question the law because you're not just arguing a legal precedent; you're arguing God. How <laughs> biblical! Yeah. Yeah, was he standing on a mountain when that was happening? Or uh, it's not entirely clear. Was there <laughs> a Jewish the man there next to? Prince no, no, no. That's that's. Hammurabi was bearded at the time, right? Um, yeah, I, I believe so. Uh, the text is in Akkadian, uh, so it is it is a it is a text meant to be read by people, rather than if it were say in Amorite, a text meant to just sort of show off to the ruling family. Um, so would they would they have mounted these places like these like would they have been like public like you said they were read, they would have been read um yeah. so would they've been like in front of a temple and like yeah. city centers yeah so so the way temples work is you have an altar outside for sacrifices and divine readings then you have the rooms of the temple in back for um essentially storing things like you know 
offerings, treasures, things like that. This would have been, I don't know if it would have been in or out, but it would have at least been visible from the doorway of the temple. So uh, no more arguing about what's law. You're just like, all right, let's just go to the temple. Here it yeah. says you're losing a hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it contains 300 codified laws, of which 282 uh, remain intact enough to be legible. That's um, impressive. Yeah, that actually really is. That's a good percentage. Yeah, yeah that's very good. Uh, it's a very good thing. And uh, it has its bases in some existing Sumerian uh, legal traditions as it was predated, um, as it is later found out by archaeologists. We didn't know this at the time we discovered it, but it has been predated by the law codes of Lipit Ishtar and Ur-Nammu, uh, which are really weird words to say when you think about them. Uh, and uh, part of why Hammurabi is so revered is because when this was first discovered, this was actually the oldest written law code in, in known history. And thus it was hailed as the first law code in human history. Interesting. So the uh, very which, first written... Uh, it, it was not the very first written, but when we discovered it in 1901, it was the oldest known. Hmm. Uh, and as such, it got a lot of acclaim. And in recent years, some people have been trying to say it's not special. Hammurabi wasn't special. Um, we shouldn't really care about him. And it's like, he conquered all of Mesopotamia in like five years. I think he was special. Look, he wasn't that special, okay? Yeah. Anyway, uh, these laws include almost every uh, subject under the sun. All right, you have laws about property, injury, malpractice, agriculture, family law, which I know is a favorite of lawyers, uh, building codes, um, and uh, economic trade. Mm. That's right. He had a fucking building code in his laws about building standards. Uh, so so there's your ye olde OSHA. Yeah. Uh, basically, if a if someone builds something for you and it and it fails due to a fault in the construction, that person must come and rebuild it for you at their own expense. Beautiful. How would they tell? Beautiful. How would they be able to tell? That's where you get lawyers. <laughs> hey there, Hezekiah. My hut fell down. Your building was bad. And then they would go, "Oh yeah, sir. You let a you let a giant bull run around in it. What would your what were you expecting? I'm yeah. sorry, my hut is supposed to be built to the standards that I could contain a giant bull. Yeah, basically, um, uh, and uh, the punishments do vary based on the status of the uh, of the uh, um, what does it say of the offenders and the offended. So basically, it's not only your standing in society but also you're standing relative to the person who hurt you mom he hurt me so basically um even though a you know so even though you might be you know a a member of the aristoc aristocracy if the person hurting you is also aristocratic the punishment is less than if the person hurting you was a pleb hmm. it's uh it's quite interesting, like that. Uh, it is very, very class-based. Um, however, its primary focus is uh, Lex Talionis, which is um, 
the idea that a person should suffer the injuries they inflict on others. It's the eye for the eye. It's, you know, you know, ba it's, it's basically the concept that like, whatever, you know, do onto others as they do onto you. <laughs> then, you know, that is, you know, this whole idea of parody is just. Oh. And, an uh, for an eye. yeah. And, uh, with that, it uh, it seems to have inspired or at least shared uh, cultural origin with both uh, the, what's the word, Mosaic Law, which is the law of the Bible, in, specifically in the Old Testament, and uh, early Roman law, which is why it's called Lex Talionis. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty Roman. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, yeah. That, that's, that's Latin. That's sort of like Latin of, like, I want to say, uh, like, Law by like law by the talon, law by the claw. Oh yeah, law by the claw. But there ain't no law when you're. No, 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 no. It's it's law by the claw. When you go back to Toy Story one. The claw. <laughs> I'm free. The law by the claw. Yep. I have uh, been chosen. Yes. Oh, please, please stop doing that correctly. Please, please stop doing that voice correctly. <laughs> <laughs> For everyone's sake. Um. The law code, despite not being the first written law code and all this stuff, which has been proven through more excavations, more knowledge of earlier Mesopotamian history, it does have one key innovation in it that is hugely important. And that is it bans a lot of tribalistic practices that exist in previous law codes, such as those of um, Lipit Ishtar and Urnamu. It uh, outright refuses to recognize things like blood feuds, private retribution. So all um, all this, you know, eye for an eye stuff, you have to go before a court and prove it before the other guy loses his eye. Mm. Um, and finally, it bans uh, a military raiding practice known as marriage by capture, also known as how the first Romans got married. You know, that's a pretty solid law, if I'm going to be honest. I think that's a wow. pretty good... Yeah. How progressive, Hammurabi. Yeah, like, that's a like, that's an innovative... It, it, uh... it, it, well, it is the first time this law is ever written. I imagine you, that this that one you... caused, like, shockwaves. Like... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the you know, it's, you know the whole thing. It's like, you cannot go into a neighboring polity, abduct someone, and make them your wife. <laughs> But like, check out this cute Greek femboy I got. <laughs> oh, don't bring the femboys into it. Shut up. It's like, oh, that's okay. That's your husband. <laughs> that, it only says wives, reverse, not husbands. It's reverse sexism. Oh, my God. I just... <laughs> you know, seriously, though, I wonder how many, what, how many marriages this immediately, like, invalidated. Oh, it didn't invalidate any... I don't believe it invalidated existing marriages. I, I, I know it been, probably kept them yeah. in law, but I wonder yeah. how many in theory yeah. would have been of like, yeah, no. oh, all the people looking at their wives from the neighboring polity going... Well, oh. well, well, Justin, um, Hammurabi did conquer uh, about six or seven nations Yeah, uh, with a massive army he spent over two decades building. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh there's a few other things it does um uh, another key innovation is it is still the earliest known existence of a person being considered innocent until proven guilty 
hence the ban on private retribution and taking the eye out before uh, someone has gone to court over whether or not they should lose that eye. Wow. That's actually, that. I think that, that's that, a lot of what the is, U.S. borrows. Yeah. Like that 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 is something that we get from that is something that we get from Hammurabi's law code. All subsequent law codes really get this idea that no, you have to provide evidence and testimony that this is in fact the person who did the thing to you before we get the torches and pitchforks. <laughs> Guilty until proven innocent. Yep. Oh, all that stuff. And uh, I just like to imagine like a bunch of like um, Babylonian conservatives were screaming like he's gone woke. Oh no! <laughs> Are you telling me they get to be innocent before uh, they have to be proven guilty? Yeah, what they is take this? The eyes out first, it's the stoning from the life of Brian, where they they don't even want to wait for the announcement of what he's guilty of. <laughs> yeah. they start throwing the rocks. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, there is one more key thing with this law code, and that is, um, like like modern museums, it came with its own mission statements. It is written on the law code uh, under the uh, sort of part where it's, you know, Hammurabi, you know, received these laws from the god Shamesh, blah, 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 you know, explaining the divine origins, which gets you out of a lot of trouble with people questioning the law. Under that is written that these laws, uh, this law code is uh, presented to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak and to see that justice is done to widows and to orphans. Because with the tribal law bullshit that came before, um, basically you needed some guy in order to exist legally. Now you don't need that because, you know, relation to a dead person still grants you legal protection. I also just find it interesting how they say to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak, but because of the classist legal system, it kind of innately... It, it, it innately allows them to oppress the weak. However, they have to do it under, the, under certain rules. Like, I don't know, actually, you know, pay back the damages you cause when you hurt, uh, you know, when you kill, you know, someone's enslaved person. Or which they didn't have to do before, or um, I don't know. When you kill a peasant, you suffer consequences instead of just going. He was a peasant. I am not. No, you ran him over. <laughs> Somebody has to. You, know, you got to lose something here. Oh no! It was a buggy hit and run, or like a horse. I'm carriage. sorry. I thought this was Babylon. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I thought uh, this uh, was Babylon. Uh, Can't run over wait. peasants anymore. What has this country gone to? Let's see. Is this it? Oh yeah, this might be good translation. The old leadership wouldn't have let this happen. Yeah. Right. Let's see. What should we do? Um. All right. Here we go. Uh, personal injury. Uh, law number one hundred and ninety-five of the Law Code of Hammurabi. If a son strikes his father, they shall cut off his hand. If a man breaks another man's bone, they shall break his bone. Law 197. Um. Ooh, uh, all right, here we go. I got some of the clap, but here's some of the classist ones. Um. Uh, number. Um. 
Number 210. If a man uh, causes a woman to die, his daughter shall be killed. Wow. Um, if a man causes a female slave to have a miscarriage, he shall pay two shekels of silver. To the slave or to the slave's owner? Um, it just says he shall pay two shekels of silver. Um, I do not know to whom. I presume to the ownership. Yeah, because I wonder, you pay it to a slave and it's like, oh, that's also just the cost of the slave. Hey, you just bought him freedom. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't that, that generous. No. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Let's see. There's yeah. There's, um, you know, basically yeah. It's a hundred different purchasing and different prices uh, for things. Uh, the best I believe is malpractice. Um. Uh, it states that um, if a physician operates on a man for a severe wound and saves that man's life, he shall receive ten shekels of silver. If that man is a plebeian, he shall receive five shekels instead. If that man is a slave, the owner shall pay two shekels. If a physician operates on a man for a severe wound and causes the man's death, they shall cut off the physician's hand. Oh my god. Uh, if the physician operates on a slave for a severe wound and causes his death, he shall restore a slave of equal value. Uh... Law Code of Hammurabi, numbers 215 to 219. I also, I, I, I hate how it says restore. That makes it sound like it really is a piece of property and not like a human. Justin. I mean, it's slavery. Justin, I know. Justin, the, the year is like I'm aware. 1750 I... BCE. This is 3,700 years ago. We're going to repair that. All right. Yeah. This is like. This is, there's so much not good going on right here, but this is, uh, this is, as we stated, far more progressive than anything else. And it is far more comprehensive, too, as it talks about anything and everything, including uh, wage disputes. <laughs> wow. Um, Hard to get that, my guy. Unionization in Babylonia? Um, there's a well, lot going on here. <laughs> Babylon. Well, there are, yep, there are a number of, um, there are a number of th of of protections uh, for people who say um, uh, are high res and suffer property damage, um, including a number of circumstances in which uh, it is in fact the uh, high res fault. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, for example, um, if a man hires uh, an animal and a beast kills it in an open field. The loss falls on the owner of the beast and not the man who hired it. As it is basically, you know, an act of God. <laughs> I've um, had that. I've been, yeah. had that declared for one of something that happened to me in a car accident once. An act yeah. of God. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. There's a lot. Jeez, I didn't. Even... Yeah. Yeah. However, if the if the ox dies due to the man's carelessness, 
than it is on the than is on the man who hired the ox to restore you know to restore one of value. And so you can see right there, 244 and 245 create a wonderful uh, legal battle between themselves as to whether it's you know the fault of you know the beast or whether the guy was just being careless and let it get to the beast. I mean, like they, Hammurabi was very thorough. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, sections in here um, on false accusations, on stolen property, on um, failing to maintain irrigation systems, uh, on trade regulations, personal injury, family life, physicians, malpractice, building code, and wage practice lawsuits in Hammurabi's time? Hell yeah, man. Um, yeah, basically, uh, it states how much you receive for saving a man's life. You receive less the lower class the man is. However, at any point, with the exception of a slave, should you should the man die while undergoing your operation, you lose your hand. Yeah, it's absolute. It's like yeah, this is this is absolutist. <laughs> there's some really there's some really weird ones in here. <laughs> But yeah, I think that should be a good point for us to wrap up. We went over a couple of the laws, got to yeah. talk about Hammurabi himself, and yeah. And, the and man, the myth, the legend. Before we log off, one last law for the final in the pocket, because I want to hear your reactions to this one, because this is, this, is, this is one of the most fun ones in, in here. And I think uh, your guys' relationship both with um, religion and with the sheer misogyny of this one is going to be fun. <laughs> um. Law 110 of the Law Code of Hammurabi states, If a priestess who is not living in a convent opens a wine shop or enters a wine shop for a drink, they shall burn that woman. Drinking wine as a woman who is a priestess but is not living in a nunnery is punishable. By burning alive. I just feel like that would uh, have a negative effect on a lot of middle-aged women. And, yeah. Listen, let the ladies get drunk once in a while. Yeah, get a little wine drunk. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This law highly implies that if the winery is part of a convent, it is perfectly acceptable for the nuns to own a winery. Well, I'll take it this way. Uh, a lot of uh, brewing traditions in Europe came from medieval monks, so... Yeah. But but it is illegal for them to do it if there's only one of them, which means you must go in groups. A <laughs> uh, flock of... Nine. Okay. Illegal, no, no that's not... That's just that, common sense. Yeah, you don't go drinking by yourself. Illegal. It's illegal to drink alone as a female priest, but only if you're alone, which is what the law implies. Yeah, so they just got to go in a group. It's called it's called brunch. Oh no, they're getting mimosa wasted. <laughs> That's, see, this is a fun law because it implies that it's only a crime if you do it by yourself. Yeah, Drinking it's a fun law that ends crime. with you getting burned at the stake if it's by yourself. Well, here's the thing. Imagine if that applied to other crimes, you know. Bank robbery is an executable offense unless there's more than one bank robber. <laughs> Think about that. So uh, maybe the logic of one ten. Maybe they just want you to be more successful then, because it's like 
you know, the, the three of us, let's go do it. Cause then the, the, the punishment will be lessened for all three for the same crime. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if we're going to get, go, if we're going to sign off now, I'd like for everyone in YouTube land, if you're watching us there to please comment, we are the 110 uh, to know that you made it to the end of the video. All right. <laughs> also go check out some of the Hammurabi code laws. Those, I'm sure you'll find something fun. It's a fun. Yeah. Tell us your favorite. Yeah. <laughs> but like thank it. you guys for watching and be sure to check out our next episode in two weeks. Thank you guys for watching.